All righty, ready. Welcome, welcome. Good to have you uh, here along for the afternoon, just after one o'clock. John Scholes here and James Fireman, always representing Sam Firu to mark an LLP, the most positively reviewed law firm in the country. You have disability law woes. Maybe you're dealing with that uh, oh so friendly disability insurer. Yeah, you can appeal, but we're going to cut you off anyway. How about them apples? No, you don't sit back and take it. You call us or you email us or text us right now uh, if you'd like to. We'd love to have you on 416 872 10 for the phone call, the text is 71010 and help at disabilityrights.ca. By the way, there's another place you can ask questions. We always plug and talk about mydisabilityquestions.com. And I think we're going to get to some from that particular uh, website here in just a bit. But James, we always start off with a couple things you've been working on over the last week or two. What's, uh, what's rolling with you, pal? Well, you know, I'm uh, still recovering from a crushing defeat oh. by the Jays last week. Uh, it's the biggest uh biggest lead blown by a home team in major league playoff history and just wondering whether wow. an entire city can claim disability <laughs> benefits for ptsd sure um unfortunately probably not but um uh, certainly that's something that we're all dealing with these days um in many different ways not to make light of it of course but let's yeah. talk about uh the week that was a a couple of people who i spoke with in fact yesterday and as i was speaking with them it occurred to me in both situations that these would make good topics to discuss on the show so i want to share uh what happened with each of them give you give you a little details about their story and perhaps pass on some wisdom to our listeners so the first gentleman that called me uh he's in his early 60s and has worked in a manufacturing plant for i think 27 years and woke up one day and his Achilles tendon was ruptured, has no idea how it happened. doesn't really matter. He went on short-term and then long-term disability. And his policy is a bit of a strange one in that uh, he has an 18-month change of disability. We talk on the show often about the two-year mark and the change of disability. His is just different for whatever reason the policy was uh, agreed to as 18 months as opposed to 24. So again, you know, you always want to check the policy, but even so, that's still something that you can deal with. Except that when he was coming up on that change of definition, he was under, on the understanding, mostly by what his uh, insurer uh, had told him, the claims manager, mm-hmm. that he only had 18 months of disability benefits, at which point it stopped. He didn't understand that it was simply a change of definition and that he might well still qualify afterwards. And this is what he told me. I said to him, you know, if we bring a claim, we're going to be looking to claim, you know, into the future. He says, well, I only got 18 months. And so I took a look at his policy. And of course, as with all policies or all standard policies, anyway, it goes up to age 65. So lesson number one, check your policy, make sure that uh, it's, you know, make sure that what you understand from the claims manager is correct. I suspect what happened here is a claims manager very much wanted to leave an impression with him that it was only 18 months. I suspect if we also had the tape, the claims manager probably didn't say you only get benefits for 18 months, but probably very much tried to imply that and didn't correct him if it was otherwise. And so he was left with the impression that there was nothing he can do when he could have. So he winds up going back to work on a modified position 
for about a year and a half, actually, right. until his employer says, listen, and he wasn't really doing anything. His employer was being quite generous and giving him a modified position where, you know, every hour or two, he would have to check something or other. I didn't quite understand it, but essentially he was off of his feet and he's got a high school education and he doesn't have training or experience for much anything else. And so there wasn't much he could do. And eventually his employer said, listen, we can't afford to keep doing this, right. which is understandable. Mm-hmm. And so he applied for disability again, but this time they said no, which is pretty ridiculous given what his disabilities are. I mean, I think they're probably going to try and rely on the modified job he held before, but that was clearly an accommodation from his employer. So the point of all of this is really one, you know, check your policy. And two, if your insurer is saying something to you that just doesn't seem right, it's not kosher, your spidey senses are tingling, then give us a call. I'll, I'll be happy to take a look at anything that they've said to you, review your policy, and let you know if everything's on the up and up. And if it's not, then we'll talk about how we can address it and what we can do to recover the benefits. So go ahead, John. You have a question I can tell. I, I was just going to say, I, I, I should mention that before we continue to reach out to you guys, one 821 5900 because this can get oh so confusing, right? So I just want to mention that. But continue on, Paul. What else are we going to talk about? So sure, there is another gentleman that called me yesterday as well. And so he's suffering from mental health issues. He was approved for STD for a little while, but then they cut him off. And what happened in this case is that the insurer said that his doctor hadn't provided the full records, the full clinical notes and records and test results and so on and so forth. So he appeals, and in the appeal, he gets more records from his doctor, which includes a lot of what wasn't there, not all of it. His doctor never provided the clinical notes and records to the insurance company. And there are reasons why some uh, mental health physicians are hesitant to provide that, and I understand it because it's often quite sensitive, and when you're dealing with mental health issues, then uh, disclosing that to an insurer can raise other issues and problems. And that's understandable, but unfortunately, the way the law works is you really have to disclose all of those records. Right. And so he hadn't done that yet. And so he called me and you know, he was obviously upset that his benefits had been cut off and thought that he had done all that was necessary to comply and really wanted to bring a claim. And I said, well, listen, you really do have to provide those records. If you don't, you're making it too easy for the insurance company to deny your benefits. And he said, well, even if I provide them, they're gonna come, they're not gonna they're gonna cut me off anyway. They're not gonna change their mind. I said, You're probably right. You know, insurers, once they have that justification, as you well know, once they have that justification, it's very unusual that they're gonna change their mind. But if they actually don't have all of the information, there's at least a chance that they might reinstate. And so really there's two reasons why it's important that before you look at bringing a legal claim, you make sure that you've provided the insurance company with everything that they need. Number one is they might actually approve your claim. And of course, if you're able to get your benefits without having to hire a lawyer like myself and pay legal fees, that's much better for you. You get 100% of your benefits and yeah. you don't have to pay legal fees. So obviously it's worth taking that shot if you haven't actually provided them with everything necessary. But the other reason is even if he's right that they're not going to uh, reinstate anyway, and he may well be, it is still much better to have first provided the insurance company with all of the documents because it puts you in a way better position 
if you do decide to bring a legal claim down the road. And let me tell you why. If you bring a legal claim and you haven't provided all of the documents in advance, if you can prove that you have a legitimate claim, then you're likely going to succeed and you're likely going to get the benefits that you're entitled to, perhaps with some amount of compromise, because you know anytime there's litigation, there's always a chance that you could lose. And so you really have to make sure that you're not holding out for more than you, you might actually get at the end of the day. So you may wind up compromising off of that and you have no ability in that situation to argue that the insurance company acted in bad faith. Why? Because you never provided them with all the documents. So they're not really risking anything more than paying the benefits. You haven't really done anything to force their hand. But on the other hand, if you provide them with everything that they're entitled to, you don't give them any reason. You don't give them any excuse to say, oh, well, we never saw this. So you can't really blame us for it. If they had all the relevant documentation, even after the appeal, if they had all the relevant documentation and still maintained, that you are not entitled to benefits. Now there is a potential for exposure to damages. And what I mean by damages, I mean punitive damages. I mean the opportunity that if the case ever went to trial, a judge would say that not only does the insurance company have to pay the benefits, but they also have to pay punitive damages over and above that amount because they acted unfairly, because their decision wasn't one that was made in good faith. And if you remove the possibility of that argument, then you don't create any incentive for the insurer to settle your claim for an amount that might be more than they want to. And without that, you don't have leverage. And so you're going to wind up compromising. So I said to him, listen, you got to make sure you provide all those documents first. Once you've provided them, see what the insurer says and then get back to me. He really wanted to get started on it. And so, you know, I want to make sure people understand, you know, if you call me, even if you have a legitimate claim, if I don't think it's in your best interest to start a claim, I'm not going to encourage you to do that. It's just not, I'm going to make sure that you take the path that is going to put you in the best position possible. And any lawyer who is acting the way that they're supposed to, in their client's best interest, would give that kind of advice. You've just got to be well-armed before you go in, right, as far as documentation, everything that you're uh, you're asking people to have, because I know it could be a little, it could be a little muddy, it could be a little busy to get all this stuff together before you, before you go down that road. But again, you can't do it without calling you first, because some people, like myself and anybody else, are not going to know exactly what they need, right? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, in this situation, even if it's, uh, in, in this case, it wasn't the situation that he you know, didn't want to produce the records. Yeah. But sometimes I have clients that are that, that will suggest that will that will not want to produce the records to uh, to the insurance company and say, I, I want to bring a claim. I don't want to produce them. Well, you know what? If we bring a claim, we're going to have to produce them anyway. Right. So one way or the other, the insurance company is going to get their hands on their on those records. You might as well give it to them at the outset so that if they deny, you can make the claim for bad faith as well. With that, we'll take a short break, get back into it, give you some time to grab a phone. If calls come to mind, questions, uh, feel free to bring them on and talk to us, 416-872-1010. If you'd rather text, that is also an option as well, 710 to, to do that. And we'll get into your emails after we return. That is help at disabilityrights.ca. We'll continue. This is the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
And welcome back. It is 120. Disability Law Show is here. John Scholes, James Fireman, reaching out to James and his team anytime. Always ready to have that chat. Could be confusing, right? Well, clear out the confusion. Make the phone call 1-855-821-5900. Email address is help at disabilityrights.ca. And there's also a place where you can ask more questions anonymously for no charge. That would be mydisabilityquestions.com. We'll get to, get, uh, get to some of those a little later on in the show. And phone calls right here and now if you want to call into the station with some questions um, for yourself, behalf of a friend, colleague who's dealing with an insurer, maybe on or off disability, been asked to appeal. There's a million different things you're going to have to uh, navigate dealing with that insurance company, but start with a phone call right here, 416-872-1010 or text 71010 as well. We'll talk about those on air. But I want to get to our first email of the show. James, Bruce is our guy. Simple says, can my employment be terminated while on LTD and how does that affect my claim? Okay, so I have to preface my answer Mm -hmm. because this is a partial employment question with I am not an employment lawyer. Now, certainly our our firm has many outstanding employment lawyers. And indeed, if you were to tune into this very station, I believe at this very time tomorrow, you you would hear Lior or uh, one of my other partners on the air talking to you about employment law specifically. Yes. That said, there is very often going to be a, uh, a confluence of both areas of law between both uh, employment and disability that's going to come up. And this is, of course, one of them. What happens to when your employment is terminated while you're on LTD? How does that affect it? So if you are on LTD and you are terminated, then the question is, do you are you able to maintain your LTD coverage? Because in theory, you no longer have those benefits anymore. As soon as you bring a claim for long-term disability benefits, your coverage is crystallized. So the moment you go on your leave, that coverage is going to continue for as long as you qualify for benefits under the policy, which in theory could be up until age 65. So let's say you're 30 years old and you've been on LTD for eight months and you get terminated and you you know you lose your benefits from your employer well even if you lose those benefits because you've been terminated and you're on ltd you're going to maintain that ltd coverage right up until the moment that you are no longer disabled and if that lasts until you're 65 then you keep your ltd benefits until you're 65. so that is indeed how it works if you have LTD, if you've been approved for LTD, you keep it even if you've been terminated. And even if you've been denied LTD um, and you've been terminated in the interim, as long as you bring a claim, a legal claim, mm-hmm. within the two-year window, within that two-year limitation period, even if you were subsequently terminated, you're still entitled to bring that legal claim. And if you are subsequently approved for LTD benefits, through the through the legal process, which sometimes happens, sometimes there's a reinstatement, you would then still be entitled to continue getting your benefits, even if you were terminated in that situation actually before you actually got approved. So it is actually quite possible. And if you have the LTD already approved, then it isn't an issue at all. Does it make a difference, James? Kind of that the way you were talking there kind of brought something up. So, say you're on LTD um, from your employer and they switch providers, does that make a difference? 
No. Uh, ah, so this th- this is also another question that, of course, comes up all the time. And you know, if you are getting your LTD benefits with one insurance company, then again, your benefits are crystallized under that policy. So if your employer changes providers, doesn't change anything for your LTD benefits. You're still getting LTD benefits under that policy that was applicable at the time you went on medical leave. Even if it's with the same provider and they change something within the policy, they change the payout amount or um, they change the notice period or whatever, none of that impacts you. Your policy is crystallized on the date that you go on your leave, the date of your disability. And at that point, whatever changes happen afterwards won't have any impact on your particular claim. It's simply going to be a matter of, do you qualify under the policy as it was on the date that you went on leave? Just getting a uh, phone call lined up here and ready. You got some time to uh, to chime in as well. 416-872-1010. First of all, I want to get to a question from mydisabilityquestions.com. And it says, uh, I'm concerned that one of my doctors will no longer support me being off work, but I'm not ready to return. Will having another doctor write medical reports for me affect my claim? Great question. So, yeah, it, this is a complicated question. Uh, it can Uh, If you have a doctor that is being non-supportive, then first of all, you have to think of it from a strictly from a medical perspective, from your own health care. Is this the person that I want providing me with my health care? If they are, but they're just not being supportive, then I think you're best served by staying with them. And if they're not supportive, then there's a reason for that. And it probably is because you're not likely going to be entitled to your benefits. Uh If you are legitimately disabled and you just have a doctor who um, is perhaps an outlier in the context of your other healthcare professionals, um, and you feel like you are going to be better served by having somebody else comment on it, then you should. Will that have an impact on how the insurer interprets the information? It might. You know, they'll, they'll certainly realize that you've changed doctors, and they might read something into that. But so what? That's fine. Uh, if they're going to do that, that's okay. As long as you have a medical opinion that is supporting you, you certainly have the basis for bringing a claim. And if there are competing views, then so be it. We have a call that kind of turned into a question, James. A longtime employee company took money for claims benefits. They're not giving me that money. What does that mean? Yeah. Oh, so the, well, I wasn't actually really sure. I just saw that as well. But if they've dropped off the line, then maybe we'll just leave that until they call back. Yeah, see if they uh, give us a call because it's a a little convoluted. Again, mydisabilityquestions.com, always a good place to start for questions on the show as well. Uh, I also do not think my psychiatrist will support medical accommodation for return to work, but my family doctor will. Would that affect my claim with the insurance company? So again, this is a continuation of of that last question. And so if your psychiatrist, who's you know a, a specialist, uh, isn't supporting your claim, but your family doctor is, sure, that does have an impact. If your claim is primarily a mental health claim and your specialist is non-supportive and your family doctor is, that's not as good as if they are both being supportive. And I would probably venture to guess in most situations, if you only had your one of the specialists or your GP being supportive, it might probably be better if you have your your specialist because that's the person who is probably going to be most relevant in deciding whether or not you actually have a disability, the person with the specialized expertise in the area that you are having an issue with. Uh But it doesn't mean that because it's only one or the other, 
that all of a sudden you're not going to have a valid claim. And in that particular case, when you're talking about a specialist who isn't, but a family doctor who is, keep in mind that the specialist here is a psychiatrist. And so the psychiatrist might be saying from a mental health point of view, strictly speaking, this person does not have a disability from work. But the family doctor may be saying, okay, perhaps the mental health issues aren't in and of themselves enough to disable this person from work, but they also have whatever else is going on. It may be you know, a lung condition or a back issue or whatever. And in combination with the physical and mental health issues, the family doctor believes that they do indeed do have a valid claim that they are disabled from work overall. That's perfectly fine. And so in those situations where you have a specialist saying, no, it's not there, but a family doctor saying, yes, absolutely. That's something that can uh, be a very successful claim, even if the insurance company is saying no. Uh, continues on. We'll get to a bit of this before we actually know what we'll take a we'll take a quick break first. But there's more from mydisabilityquestions.com. Lots more emails as well. You can send one along. Feel free. Bring it on. Help at disabilityrights.ca. Mydisabilityquestions.com. Or you can call into the station if we get that caller back for sure. Uh, but you can too. Four one six eight seven two ten ten. Text your questions. That would be seven ten ten as well. We'll continue on here. Lots more to go on the disability law show right here on uh, the Bell Talk Radio Network. It is 135. Welcome back. Thanks so much for sticking around. If you've been here from the start, you can reach out anytime, by the way, with questions at uh, 416-872-1010 or Texas. We like those. 71010 is the way to do that. Uh, James Fireman here, always ready to answer questions outside this hour. How do you get a hold of James, his team? Best in the business, 1-855-821-5900 and help at disabilityrights.ca. There's also a website you can use anytime, which is, of course, free and anonymous. We'll give you short, concise, easy to read and digest memos all about the world of LTD and anything that may concern you. That is ltdfaq.ca. But as always, inviting you to uh, call us over the next 25 minutes. Get on air and uh, get some clarity, answer some questions. But we're uh, talking about uh, these questions, uh, multi-part question, actually, from my disability questions com james and this person worried about having uh, no longer having the support of some of their medical staff also saying they've been on long term for 1.6 years and says my change of definition is next year uh, i would like to know my legal rights regarding the change of definition if my claim especially if i'm not feeling better i assume it's a two-year mark we're talking about yeah and so I, this sort of harkens back to the uh, week that was that mm-hmm. i brought up earlier uh, the the gentleman that I dealt with yesterday had an unusual policy where he, his change of definition was two was sorry eighteen months. Uh, the standard, of course, though, is two years. And so let me take a step back and discuss what is this change of definition. So when you go on medical leave and you apply for disability benefits, whether it's short term or long term, the initial test is going to be whether you have a disability that prevents you from being able to do your own occupation. The language can be a little bit different from policy to policy, but in substance, that's what it is. Do you Mm -hmm. have a disability that is preventing you from being able to do your own occupation? 
there is in almost every long-term disability policy a point that is typically two years out called the change of definition. So two years, not from the date you go on leave, but from the date your long-term disability benefits start being paid. So oftentimes there's a six-month elimination or waiting period, sometimes it's four months, before your LTD benefits start. From the date the LTD benefits start being paid, there is typically a two-year period up until the change of definition. At that change of definition, the test for disability benefits changes to whether or not you have a disability that prevents you from doing any occupation that you're qualified for by training, education, or experience. And so that is a tougher test, but it's, there's also something that comes along with it that is often not written directly into the policy, but that anytime it's before court, they will read into it a requirement that the job that you are able to do, that you're qualified for, that's outside of your own occupation, has to pay you at least a commensurate income, which the courts interpret typically as being something around 60 to 70%. And so even at that change of definition, that two-year mark typically, um, it, even if there are other occupations that you can do, unless those other occupations are going to pay you that commensurate income, then you're still going to be entitled to your benefits. I should add that on occasion, some policies will actually have the commensurate income level spelled out. It'll be you know, 50%, 60%, 70%. If it is written into the policy, then that is what applies. If it's not, then it's usually something around 60%. That's the way the courts will interpret it. So getting back to this question, what are your legal rights? Well, you should expect when you're getting close to the change of definition that your insurance company is probably going to start looking for ways to justify cutting you off. They may not legitimately have any. And of course, if you are suffering from a disability where it is painfully obvious that you're never going to be able to go back to work, if you have a mm -hmm. severe brain injury, um, if you have quadriplegia, if you know something where it's just obvious you're never going to be able to work, hopefully your insurer is not going to try and do something. But many other situations, they're certainly going to explore wh whether that's an option, sometimes quite aggressively. And so what does that mean? Well, oftentimes they will send you for a work hardening program. They will do what's called also a transferable skills analysis where they get you to fill out a form where they have somebody call and interview you to figure out what are what's your education your training and your uh, experience and then they'll generate a list of potential occupations that you're qualified for and that your medical limitations would still allow you to do and if those jobs would pay you that commensurate wage then your insurer is probably going to take the position that you are no longer entitled to benefits at that change of definition so what are your rights well you're, you certainly have the right to uh, to argue otherwise and to make sure that anything that your insurer is asking you to do is approved by your doctor, but you can't refuse to get you to get assessed. So if the insurance company is saying we'd like to have you, if you let's say you have a mental health issue, we'd like to send you to our to the psychiatrist so that you can be assessed and we can get the psychiatrist's opinion regarding whether or not you're disabled. Uh, they're allowed to do that, and if you say no, they will cut off your benefits then and there, and they'll be justified in doing it. You have to go to their assessments. But on the other hand, if they say, we think you should go for this work hardening program, uh, 
where you go through this rehabilitation and you okay. undergo this that kind of treatment. Well, that might be appropriate, but it also might not be. It really, you know, depends on the extent of your disability and where you are in your recovery and your treatment. If they're asking you to undergo any particular program or treatment, then it's absolutely within your rights to request the details of that and have your your primary care physician, typically your family doctor, take a look at that and give their opinion as to whether or not it's appropriate for you to submit to that. Because your insurer is looking at this as how can I find a way to get this person off benefits and justify that they can go back to work. And so they're really just going to be focusing on what's best for them. They're quite happy to give you a Band-Aid for a gunshot wound if it will justify you going back to work. But obviously, your doctor's got a different priority. Your doctor is looking at your overall health, not just in the very immediate future, but long term as well. And so you want to make sure you have your doctor look at that and give their approval. If your doctor says no and your insurance company says, well, we're not going to pay your benefits if you don't go. I would tell you, listen to your doctor and understand that your insurer will probably cut off your benefits and that we're going to have to bring a legal claim. But the reality is you don't really have much of a choice in the matter anyway, because if you try going back to work when your doctor says no, you're not going to succeed anyway. And don't believe for a moment that your insurer is going to reinstate your benefits if you try unsuccessfully. Yes, there are provisions in the policy that suggest that the insurer is required to do so, but I'm going to shock you here, John. The insurers don't always abide by those policies <laughs> and the procedure. Uh, it, it doesn't always happen that way. And in yeah. fact, I would I would venture to guess far more often than not, once the insurer is forced back to work, whether you're successful or not, they're not going to continue to voluntarily pay your benefits afterwards. So that's really what you have to be thinking about as you're approaching that change definition. This question from mydisabilityquestions.com is one more small part at the end. It says, I also struggle with bipolar disorder, comorbid with anxiety disorder, CPTSD. Insurance companies have been calling a lot lately using tactics, try to get me to return to work. I'm not ready. Yeah, you know, this happens a lot, particularly uh, with people who call me that are suffering from mental health issues, and especially with an array of them like this. Um, You know, I'd like to be less cynical and believe that it is just an insurance company um, trying to do their job and, and be aggressive. But frankly, I see this so much more often with people suffering from mental health disorders that it's hard to believe that this isn't intentional that there isn't a certain amount of intentionality with the insurer, Um, you know, if not harassing, then coming real close, making life really difficult for people who are trying to get benefits because they know that often people who are suffering from, from these kinds of uh, kinds of issues are very vulnerable and really don't have it in them to fight with an insurance company and are much more likely to just give up. So if you're out there, if this sounds at all familiar to you, please do not just give up. Give me a call and let's talk about your situation and what we can do. Because the reality is once I get involved, then there is no communication between the insurance company and my client. If if I'm retained, you are not going to hear from the insurance company anymore. All communications can be announced. And with that, we will take a short break and back into some more emails and a text or two that came in. Uh, you can do that. You still got time for a call too, 416 872 1010 and text 71010 as well. We'll continue Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. 
You're listening to the Disability Law Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. And welcome back for the last few minutes of the Disability Law Show. Yeah, good times. You want to reach out afterwards to James Fireman and his team. Here's the here's the number. First of all, one eight five five eight two one fifty nine hundred and help at disabilityrights.ca. Got a text in. Thank you so much for sending it along and tuning in this afternoon. 71010, by the way, is the text number we use every week. Says, I am on leave for general anxiety disorder. I have run out of the STD period and my doctor applied for LTD early September. I received a request from the insurance company to fill out a form to determine if my illness is due to a pre-existing condition. I filled out the form already. It asked for the names of any health practitioners I saw from April to September, 2021 as well as any pharmacies, but no timeline on that. Apparently, if it's due to a pre-existing condition, then they can deny my claim. The truth is, it's not, and I did not see any practitioners in that time frame. I have, however, long-standing prescriptions for some drugs to use as needed for sleep and residual anxiety for PTSD diagnosis 10 years ago. First, is it normal that they ask for this? Second, should I be worried having terrible anxiety over this, of course? What do you think, James? Well, it's an excellent question. And, you know, the pre-existing exclusion is Mm -hmm. probably one of the more complicated issues in long-term disability and one of the most misunderstood. So first of all, so people understand having a pre-existing condition, unlike in many types of insurance, doesn't in most cases prevent you from being able to get disability benefits. It only applies for long-term disability and only if the disability arises typically within the first year of your coverage. So let's say you get hired for some new job and you go on the company benefits plan, which includes long-term disability. If during that first year of coverage under the new plan, you have a disability, then they're going to look at whether that disability was pre-existing. Now, this is where it can get pretty complicated because there are all sorts of different ways that the pre-existing exclusion can work. Usually, it's if it comes up in the first year, but the question is, what is relevant in terms of what happened before? There are some policies where if you ever had the disability that you are now disabled from, they will argue that you are not entitled. There are others where they're only going to look at a much smaller window, perhaps 90 days before you became insured. And so it's only whether you had uh, any treatment within the three months for that disability before you became covered that the exclusion would apply. Uh, So you really want to take some time and take a look at the policy. So first of all, just to clear up another confusion, um, this person who texted us was approved for STD. And so if you're wondering why are they approved for short-term disability, but now for long-term, they're looking at pre-existing. That's pretty common. Short-term disability virtually never has a pre-existing exclusion. So you can certainly get approved for that and not approved for long-term disability if the pre-existing exclusion applies. But is it the appropriate thing for the insurance company to be doing in this circumstance? It's hard to know because this text message doesn't actually say what the disability is that this person is is claiming is disabling them from work right now. If it is anxiety, if they are disabled from work because of anxiety, then there is a very good chance, unfortunately, that the pre-existing exclusion will apply. But it will depend on the language specifically used. Typically speaking, 
they will say it's if you've gotten treatment, which often is going to be interpreted to include uh, any medication. So if you are taking medication, even if you're not seeing a doctor, but if you're taking medication for, let's say, anxiety, and then you go off for anxiety two or three months after you get your coverage, then that will apply, unfortunately. But if the disability is not anxiety, the disability is something else, even if it's mental health related, then it shouldn't, it shouldn't apply. The pre-existing mm. exclusion shouldn't be applied. So let's say that this person who's texting us is now off because of depression. If the, As long as the depression itself is distinct from the anxiety, and they are not the same thing. Listen, I, I'm, I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not qualified to opine on that. But I can tell you that they are absolutely different diagnoses. They often will go hand in hand, but certainly not always. They are not the same thing. And so if it is a distinct, different diagnosis that this person is suffering from, even if it might be treated with the same medication, that doesn't mean that having taken that medication prior to being covered uh, would trigger that pre-existing exclusion. So it's really going to depend on the circumstances. Where it can get very tricky, is if the policy has language that says that the pre-existing exclusion applies if it's from a disability that either directly or indirectly impacts your present disability. So in that situation, if they can argue, even if this person is suffering from a depression right now, if they can argue that the depression is indirectly related to the anxiety and that is medically accurate, then unfortunately, the pre-existing exclusion might well apply. There are a lot of variables, as you can tell, that are in play here. So it, it, it's hard for me to give a very clear answer without knowing the answer to all of those different variables and how they play out. So I would very much encourage the the person who sent this text message um, to write an email or to uh, to to our firm or to myself personally, and I'm more than happy to provide a much more specific answer if I can get those details. And it's quite easy, and certainly before we sign off, John is going to give all of that information on mm-hmm. that. So. You know, it's kind of nice, James, as you as you know, I've traveled recently. It's nice that the COVID restrictions have been relaxed big time, even lifted for the most part over the last uh, few weeks. But how has that impacted disability claims for you guys in the legal process? Positive, negative at all? Um, not a lot. So uh, when when COVID hit, you know, no one really knew what was going to happen. And for the most part, things kind of went on. And the only real, ch- there are two changes that happened when COVID first came in. First was that everything became virtual. No one's meeting in person anymore, obviously. Mm -hmm. And so we started doing all of our appearances, all of our mediations, all of the examinations. Those were all being done virtually, typically over Zoom. That is still the case. In disability, most people prefer to do things virtually at this point because, one, we're comfortable with it now. We, we know how to do it, and we can do it effectively, and we understand now that we can actually get to where we need to get to without having to do it in person. So that is a change that seems to have been adopted. Uh, my clients typically, if they're disabled, aren't going to want to travel to right. a reporting studio and to be there in person. It's much more comfortable for them to be able to do it at home. And certainly the insurers like to save money. So that hasn't changed. Um, people were certainly much more available early on when travel plans got canceled. Um, I'd say that the shortened timeline that we had realized early on where 
Um, it had gone from 10 to 12 months down to, you know, maybe eight to 10 months. It's probably back to the 10 to 12 months now. Right. But other than that, there really isn't a lot that's changed in terms of disability litigation. Uh, what had changed because of COVID is, has probably uh, stayed that way, and I would argue it's for the better. And with that, we are wrapping for another Saturday. But as James mentioned, uh, contact information to wrap up the show. Here's how you get a hold of James and his crew. 1-855-821-5900. Do not hesitate to reach out anytime. The email is help at disabilityrights.ca and the free and anonymous website for you to ask questions anytime. Mydisabilityquestions.com. But again, 1-855-821-5900 to reach out to James and his team. And we'll catch you next week right here on the Disability Law Show on the Bell Talk Radio Network. Yeah. <laughs>